Episode 91 of No Guitar is Safe podcast features the incredible bass virtuoso Stuart Ham, and is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player, play better, sound better. No guitar is safe. bassist composer Stuart Ham. Genius runs in his family. His father was the awesome musicologist Charles Ham. My name is Jude Gold. Thanks for listening to No Guitar Is Safe. I gotta ask you, have you ever been to a concert where someone just completely surprised you. I'm not talking about like when I saw Herbie Hancock when I was 16, and yes, he surprised me with how awesome he was, but I kind of knew I was going to get my mind blown. I mean, at one point, all the other members left the stage, and he walked up to this white grand piano, and it was incredible. He took us on a journey through the cosmos, man. There was like more drama in that 10-minute improvised piano piece than in like eight seasons of Game of Thrones combined. But you know what? I wasn't completely surprised. Or if you see Van Halen or something, you know there's going to be a big guitar solo that is going to blow your mind. But there have been other times, like one time I saw Yes!, and this was like when I was 14 and the whole band, it was the 90125 tour, kind of a pop tour, you know, it was like owner of a lonely heart. All of a sudden the whole band left the stage except for Trevor Rabin and a steel string acoustic guitar. He decapitated everyone in that audience, man. He knocked us out of our 80s Air Jordans. Man, I was even surprised by Joe Perry from Aerosmith when I saw him around the same time. Maybe age 14 for me. He had just rejoined Aerosmith, man. He was fired up. I don't know if it was because he, I think, might have been recently sober. That might have been right when he cleaned up. Maybe it was because, I don't know, he had just rejoined the band. But he had something to prove, man. He played this version of Red House, just him and the bass and drums behind him. And he just destroyed it, man. He dug so deep and he was so angry. And he ended that solo by smashing that Stratocaster to bits, but you know the parts were still kind of held together by the strings, and he threw that whole limp mass of shredded guitar over the back of his full-stack amplifiers, and gosh, I hope it didn't hit anybody back there. It was a very intense moment that I'll never forget. That kind of surprised me. But this thing about getting surprised, I don't think I've ever been more surprised than when I went to see Joe Satriani in 1988 with my buddy Adam Johnson. Adam, who helps out with this podcast. Thank you, Ad Rock. Now, again, we knew Joe was awesome. He was the hometown hero. He already had three records out. And this was the Fillmore Auditorium, and he was incredible. But the band, all of a sudden, halfway through the show, left the stage to the bass player and then this bass player stood up there and with this huge tone clear and powerful he started playing some Beethoven (laughs) 
was two hands on the neck, but it wasn't nerdy. It was thunderous. But then it kept going. I think he went into like the Linus and Lucy Peanuts theme, which is a good two-handed piano theme. <laughs> it sounded killer. Then he started going into some of his own stuff. By this point, the whole crowd is just stunned and cheering. But he's not through. Kind of letting his sense of humor show through, he proceeds to level us and just finish the job and just destroy us all by going into this hilarious and super energetic country jam. That's a moment I'll never forget. I don't think I've ever been quite so surprised by somebody stepping out of the background and then taking over a room. And it's my pleasure to have Stuart Ham on the show today. Now, quickly, for the record, that clip that I just played you was from the same tour, but about a month later. I couldn't find the actual San Francisco Fillmore Auditorium show, but that one was from the Montreux Jazz Festival that same year. But it's also really a pleasure to have Stu on the show because... I've known him for so long, too. Now, when I first saw him that night, that was, as I said, 1988, but I got to know him a little bit when I opened for Joe Satriani in, like, 1996. My first real gig playing original rock. Stu asks me about that when the show gets started. But later, man, I gotta tell you, like, 2006, I got to do something very special with Stu. I mean, I had already played on one of his albums, Outbound, and he has so many great albums. You should check out Radio Free Albumoth. That's one of his early ones. Or his latest one, The Diary of Patrick Xavier. A lot of cool solo bass stuff. Or Just Outside of Normal. God, he does a cool Led Zeppelin cover on that. got a lot of stuff but i got to play with him a bunch you know we toured man we went all over the country twice u.s tour we even went and did some big shows in southeast asia and it was incredible because Stu, man he had this concept we're talking about 2006 joe satriani has already long established the g3 tours where he has three super badass headlining world famous guitar players Stu decided well Man, maybe we could do something using bass players. So he called it B times three, BX3, and he recruited the great bass player from Talus, Mr. Big, David Lee Roth, Billy Sheehan. 
So Billy's up there doing a whole set playing all that music and some of his solo stuff. And then Stu also got Jeff Berlin, the great jazz bass player, jazz fusion bass player. And Jeff did a bunch of his stuff, including some jazz and a little bit of maybe weather report. Also a little Charlie Parker. And of course, Stu needed to do his own stuff. Beautiful classical prog mixed with hard-hitting rock, funk, bass-driven kind of proggy stuff. So Stu had the great John Mater on drums for that tour all lined up. John can play anything. Love John. And guess what, man? You know, he needed a guitar player who could do all three of those one-hour sets with those three totally different styles. And so, naturally, he called Lauren Lieber. The great Lauren Lieber. Lauren is awesome. But for whatever reason, Lauren couldn't do the tour. So I was lucky to get a call, and we did it. And we pulled it off. Really had a good time. So that's what's up. We're going to fire up the copter and the Zoom recorder and head over a couple of hills here in Los Angeles and hang out with Stu and also talk about our days in the Bay Area where I grew up and where he lived many years, Oakland, San Francisco. Stu does have a bunch of cool bass gear. Like, you know, he's playing one of his signature Warwick basses during this interview. And of course, Stu has his uh, signature Mark bass head amplifier setup rig, which you can check out. Very nice. But today, he's just playing through his studio monitors, which is one of his favorite ways to just hear a bass in its raw form. I'm playing through a Boss Katana. I have a little too much reverb on my guitar tone today. I apologize. That, but you know, we were just throwing this together. It was so much fun. Stu is hilarious. I got to tell you, two of my favorite memories, of course, of playing with Stu is that when we did the B times three thing, every night at the end of the show, we would do Big Bottom, which is quite an appropriate song title. You know, this famous <laughs> Spinal Tap parody song with the lyrics and, um, they would give me a bass, so it was four basses. And then one night in New York City at B.B. King's, Victor Wooten sat in, so it was five basses. There's a photo of that. I get to play bass with those four bass monsters. Well, guess what? We even topped that in New York City for the Bass Player Live convention a year later. It was, and I don't think I played this time. It was, okay, help me out here, people. It was Stuart Hamm, of course, Jeff Berlin, of course, Billy Sheehan, of course, Victor Wooten was back, and then it was also Marcus Miller and Stanley Clark. Just an incredible barrage of bass legends, and there's a great photo of it, and this is what I remember. The photo of all those cats standing together, and a couple of them have four fingers up in the air, representing four strings. That's right, each one of these brilliant bass players built their entire career on four strings, which is just kind of neat to think about like everything Stu did was on four strings we're talking about an age now where people play coffee tables with strings these insane basses well you know even guitar players are playing nine strings now without further ado we're gonna go hang out with you know who you know what to do they're all yelling Stu in a band that opened for us in Reno with some really silly oh, yeah. pants? Come on. 
I told you, I remember everything. Yeah, it was. Wasn't it okay. World at a Glance? No, well, okay. No, the band was called Zenner with Dan Ross singing. Okay. And that must have been another band you're thinking of. But yeah, we did three shows opening for Saturday. That's when you and I first met. And I remember the first night was the first really big show I ever played, which is in a theater in Reno. Right. It must have been like... I remember it well. 2,000 people or something sold out. Joe Satriani sounding great. You were playing. And the next morning, you're like, all right, well, we're going to San Jose. I'll see you at the airport in 20 minutes. And we're like, uh, no, we're actually driving in this pickup truck right there. And you're like, oh, sorry. Ooh. <laughs> but we were kids, man. And we, we drove and we met you at Soundcheck the same day in San Jose, like four hours, five hours. But the first time I saw you, well, of course, I was a guitar player and Joe Satriani was the neighborhood guitar guru. And then he came out with his little white album vinyl. And then he came out with Not of This Earth, which Did was Did you know amazing. him when he lived on University Avenue in Berkeley? Well, in a little walk-up second-floor apartment? I don't know where he lived, but he taught guitar lessons not far from there. So right. perhaps. Well, there you go. Then he came out with, well, he came out with Not of This Earth, which was amazing, but wasn't like a national hit. Right. But then Surfing with the Alien came out. Oh, yeah. And he was global. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it's we're like we're still like high school kids, but me and my buddy Adam Johnson, Adam, if you're listening, I'm sorry I was so late that day. But <laughs> I get out to the Fillmore Auditorium, sold out San Francisco to check out Satriani. And it was an amazing show. Two shows. Well, I saw one. Honestly, you know, I noticed the bass player, but we're all watching Joe. Sure. But halfway through the show, he leaves the stage and gives it to the bass player, which was you. And I gotta tell you, man, I'm not trying to feed your ego here because, you know, it's already plenty <laughs> Gibraltar-esque. <laughs> no, it's not. But you really just, the sound of that bass echoing through that auditorium and the stuff you were doing on it, like most of us had never even seen anything like that. Well, it's great. I think if you, if you go to the, uh, at least last time I was at the Fillmore, right by the stairs, on stage right, if you go up, uh, upstairs, there's a nice picture of Joe and Jonathan and I between sets. I think Joe has his tie-dyed blue and white jeans right. and, and uh, cool. big hair and sleeveless vest on. You know, but Yeah, that was great. It was exciting times. Also, I think part of what happened was, I mean, it's hard to believe that, you know, I think the electric bass was invented about 70 years ago. And I've been playing bass for 46 years Right. You know, and and things changed so much in my lifetime where, uh, you know, unfortunately, I grew up in the old school where I, I started learning to play bass by playing upright bass and learning to read walking bass lines and jazz charts. Right. Imagine that. The uh, coming to learn the first time I played in a rock band, I was totally lost. I didn't know how to learn a song by ear. And fortunately, the first song I played was Whipping Post, which was an 11. So that prepared me for all the odd time post Zappa guys yeah. I played with. But, uh, you know, and then things change. Everyone, everyone, I mean, the way you played bass was just, you know. Just to go back to that bass, because I just played an example of, of that solo. But I remember that night you also threw in some other mind-boggling stuff, such as the Star Trek theme. Do you still play that? Can you play a sample of that? I can play that. I think yeah, that was all on released on an album of mine called The Urge. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think you're talking about... Uh, Thank you. 
that stuff yeah i mean you're such a huge influence on so many of us and like you talk about me being a slap guitarist well it took me you know sometimes you don't realize your influences and then one day i just woke up and was like oh my god Stu ham is just a huge influence on my slap guitar playing you know and well, it's hard. It's hard to believe. I mean, back then, just no one. Like I said, the whole bass world changed. No one, like yeah. six people, slapped back then. You know, I remember seeing yeah. uh, Larry Graham slap for the first time, and I was living in Vermont for the, at the time, and I drove sixty miles to the closest music store and took a, a bass off the wall and just took the string and pulled it and almost broke my finger. And the guy kicked me out of the store for trying to break <laughs> his bass. Right. And then all of a sudden... Were you already playing upright bass at that point? I was playing upright and electric. And then all of a sudden I hear Chris Squire playing these notes that are like, well, you don't play harmonics on the bass. And then, you know, all of a sudden I heard some Bill Bruford, Jeff Berlin records where he's playing chords on the bass. And then, of course, then Jackal came out, changed everything. I heard Stanley Clark. Right? So, I mean, all this... All these techniques came that uh, didn't exist when I was a kid, and I didn't invent tapping, but I invented my own way yeah. and was very instrumental in the creation of it. But now, you know, when you think about it, when a bass player is like twelve years old, they've yeah. got to they've got to have a handle on, you know, about half a dozen techniques that didn't yeah. exist when I was a kid. You know, it's so true. I was one of the first ones to get to it. And obviously, <laughs> the thing that people remember is uh, it's so hard because when, you, when you're trying to do this tapping thing, now it's become this whole art form where there's actually, I was in Korea teaching a high school class on solo bass. And guys, wow. you're playing seven or eight strings, so it's this whole art form. But, you know, this is, this is bass playing, right? And once that goes away, the party's over, right? If you're just playing, you go, you know... There's no bottom. So, but one of the only times I really got to use both of them was. Let's hear the melody, Jude. Come on. Oh shit. I'm just guessing. It's good. That's what I did live, you know, and the only reason it worked is because this is still going on. The low note's still going, right? I know. And just as a trio, uh, you know, I came up with the idea of playing the rhythm guitar part, and this is so old before, uh, you know, Wi-Fi or Internet, Um, and then we would do, like, Not of This Earth. Jonathan Mover had these samples where he would hit the chord, you know, and it was also very modern now but now with then but now with loopers i mean technology's come so far it was just yeah. a different world how did you end up doing that country jam because that big solo you did when i first saw you me and adam that day right when you went i mean it was like mind-boggling all through and then like when you did like the country thing at the end it's just that's when everyone's head in the room just exploded it was just brain matter on the ceiling at that point well, no no one had seen anything like that before show I mean, us a little bit of that real quick and then tell us how you came up with that well the uh, came up with it was was you know i, I think when i 
Uh, playing piano, uh, I certainly had a, an idea of independence between two hands. And then when I, when I tr decided to learn the... Peanuts theme, right. Linus and Lucy doing two different things. And then, I don't know, it just sort of uh, seemed logical. You know, when I was a kid, I used to love the Beverly Hillbillies. And yeah. they would do that, that slow intro. Then they go, the Beverly Hillbillies. And yeah. they go into the double-time banjo picking. And depending on how much sugar I'd eaten, I'd just do cartwheels off the wall in the ceiling. <laughs> and I'd would, I would go nuts. So, And in the Midwest, I heard a lot of banjo music. And I loved it. So it just seemed, seemed easy enough to... You know, start outlining the chords like that. And then uh, I think the first person, I, I, I pretty much know where I stole everything that I've yeah. written or played. So there's a great band in Boston called New Man and a great baseball called Tim Archibald. And he may have been the first guy that I saw, uh, you know, sort of using open notes. <laughs> And, I, and there's right. a song on Ricardo Steve called Burning Down the Mountain where he uses Steve I. Steve I, right? So you use the open G and you go from major to minor to the key of C. Right, so you can use the C, the open G, and then obviously in uh, banjo music there's that... So I came up with the idea of doing this thing where you play and you fret an F sharp, hammer it onto a G, and then hit the open G, and then hit the hit the fretted G, and then pop the uh, yeah. open G. But at the same time, you have to have your your left hand doing this too. So that's not sane. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing for me as an outsider to bass, even though I love to play bass and I, you know, used to mess around with Primus licks on the guitar and Flea licks. Up until that point, whenever I heard slap bass, it was always kind of like a P bass, which kind of had a real neck kind of sound. Like, sure. Right around when I saw you is when I saw people and had a really bright, like, snappy fresh strings lots of treble in addition to the low end kind of tone well a lot of that had to do with the bass that i played which was um you know the kubicki basses which i saw literally i saw a picture of in uh, guitar player magazine and i said well, that looks really cool and i think i was actually playing the nam show with steve vibe when he was with charvel right it's a long time ago and uh, i sort of like wandered and wandered back and forth in front of the kubicki bass booth and finally went and picked him up and i was just sort of experimenting on these techniques that that's beautiful I believe I it, that one. <laughs> there you go we'll, we'll get to that later so, but but all these all these techniques that really no one had really seen before, because really like it's like half a dozen yeah. people slapped on the bass, and so they uh, uh, they gave me a couple bases, and they had you know like I don't know seventeen piece laminated necks, and I think uh, ebony or some really hard hard fretboard that really made it really clacky, you know. And then I met Larry Harkey, and and I was always used solid state amps and active electronics. I, I had my first uh, active EMGs put in my Fender bass in like 1980 back yeah. in Wurlitzer's in Boston. So that all contributed because I, I wanted to uh, hear, uh, you know, to still sound like a bass would be distinct when you could play four note chords. 
right? Yeah. But, but it wouldn't sound too, uh, uh, too bassy because you think, you know, you listen back to like even uh, Jack Bruce and it's still like this John Watton, you know, a lot of bass art kind of players I, I admire, but they're playing through tube amps, through, uh, you know, ampegs, and it's great sound. But then all of a sudden you, you hear Paul McCartney who started playing bass really melodically and then here comes John Entwistle and Chris Squire who really yeah. have a much clearer tone on the bass. Yeah, and Whistle had that clear tone, like, you know, even like, I mean, I first noticed it when I first saw them, and it was a much later deal, long after Keith Moon, with like Eminence Front. Right. Oh, yeah. Like such a bright sound. Yeah, yeah. It sits, it sits in a different place in the mix, a much, a much higher, but it still, um, you know, serves the function of the, of the bass yeah. and has a low enough frequency. You know, it's, it t- you have to take into account the band you're playing with and where your bass tone is going to mix play. in it. The real me? Of course. Uh, do, you have a, do you have a guitar capo? I need a capo. Wait a second. We gotta do it, man. Okay, I actually have a capo in my thing. Quick yeah, I played, the, I played it on the capo episode, but didn't have the bass. The bass is the most important part of that song. It is. That, that and um, my generation was one of the yeah. first like bass solos I ever heard. One, two, three, four. Did you bring? It seems like you brought a lot of piano playing sort of approaches to the bass. How do? Tell me how you got started in music. First of all, I just got to know like you grew up in Vermont or where did you grow up? Um, you know, my father was the uh, president of the American Musicology Association. He was a prize-winning uh, opera composer. Before that, he wrote a number of operas uh, on uh, based on Ray Bradbury stories, The Box and The Monkey's Paw. Incredible. And um, then he sort of fell in with all those. Um, you know, experimental 12-tone row dudes. And uh, so he was teaching at uh, Tulane University, so I was born in New Orleans. We moved to the University of Illinois when I was four. And uh, they had a great music school with uh, Sal Martirano, who they just played a bunch of his music at the Green Umbrella, you know, modern music series or 20th century music at uh, Disney Hall. And uh, John Cage was there. He was a poker-playing friend of his dad's, Nanjun Pike. I used to take my plastic army man and put him between the strings of the piano for John Cage to play his prepared piano pieces. So You're blowing my mind. I, I was exposed to just all this, you know, really uh, performance art, modern yeah. 12-tone row kind of music, stuff like that, and always encouraged. My father also uh, started, uh, was the first person to teach an academic course in popular music. So he started this International Association for the Study of Popular Music. He wrote a couple of t- history books 
textbooks on the history of popular music in America, music in the New World, and Yesterdays that are sort of textbooks. So next time you read a scholarly paper on Dr. Dre, you can blame my dad for starting the scholarly uh, study of popular music. But uh, the thing was is that, you know, we were always exposed to uh, John Cage, to uh, Schoenberg, to uh, I was in a boys choir. My mom was an opera singer to being in the choir of La Boheme and uh, and then being Man. taken to see Return to Forever or Sun Ra seven nights in a row or the Rolling Stones or uh, it was all sort of treated the same Joan Baez or Switched on Bach right. or yeah so it's just great to be in a place to you know rock musician so to speak but you got the music stand and you got staff paper out. Oh man, for sure. Well, I also had, I had an older brother, Bruce, um, who uh, is in Calcutta, India now. He's an incredible musician, as you know. He ran the Ali Akbar Khan School of Indian Music in San Rafael in Berkeley for years and years and years. He's an incredible musician. He plays sarod, which is like a fretless sitar, yeah. northern northern Indian classical music. And uh, he was uh, six years older than me, so he had a record collection that had like Cream and Ma Vishnu Orchestra. And uh, Pink Floyd, Uma Guma, and um, you know John Coltrane and Miles Davis, and all this weird stuff that I used to sneak into his room and listen to, and I like yeah. that. So, did your dad support you becoming a like rock and roll musician, or did you you went to Berkeley School of Music? Did he want you to? He did. I was the youngest of three, and uh, you know, no, uh, you know, edits that or not, but my dad and I were super duper close. You know, if there was uh, one person I could have a conversation with about uh, music or movies or art or books or sports or uh, anything, it would be my it would be my dad. And I miss him dearly, my, my best friend and great guy. And uh, no, he was incredibly supportive. And again, as a third kid, they sort of stay out of your way, right. you know, as long as you don't, you know. Come yeah. home once a week, you're fine. Very so they were very supportive. Of <laughs> and I, I think, yeah, I think he was, he was proud of what I did yeah. and always supportive, you know. Well, obviously, you came on the radar, radar for all of us guitarists with the Satriani tours right. and stuff. What led up to that and you coming to California and all that stuff? Well, I had, you know, I, I played uh, piano for years and years and years, and I played flute in band that led to me getting beat up by all the bullies and country club kids in Illinois and then I switched to oboe because I immediately went from first chair second flute to first first seat oboe and that'll then I stop played, the bullying that'll stop the bullying and then I played I played uh, bass drum and marching band and all that kind of stuff and uh then you know the people ask me why I play bass, and there's you know a couple different stories. One is that my hero in life, of course, was Danny Bonaducci. You know, when I was sort of a pudgy, dorky, red-haired geek. In 1973, he was too. He was sort of my role model, and he played sure. bass on the Partridge Family Show. Oh, okay. And um, and then one day, a, a rock band played at Eisner Park on the t- on the tennis court. So I got on my Stingray and I rode over to see what it was. And the bass player had an old green uh, Fender bass with a matching headstock, uh, with a white curly barbecue cord into one of those custom amps that had the portholes and the the naugahyte yeah. padded si- sparkly siding. And I was just, it was <laughs> like sold. the coolest thing. I was sold for sure. And then, um, and then I was, uh, I, I was listening to the FM radio station from the University of Illinois and heard Roundabout. And it had that part where it got all quiet and then it comes in with a yeah. keyboard solo and that great bass line. And so I got, I got on my, uh, I opened up my cigar box and, and stole some of my uh, lawn mowing money and rode my Stingray to Kmart and bought the album Fragile. And there was Chris Squire with his curly hair and his cape playing a Rickenbacker. And I was like, dude, I was, I was sold. Awesome. That was it. I knew what I was going to do. That's for the rest killer, of my life. man. 
let's take a little break and play one of your one of your tunes, man. Because I still remember some of them, sort of, maybe. What do you want to play? I don't know, Black Ice or something. We could play Black Ice. Let's get this hip shot working. All right. Black Ice has a dual meaning. It wasn't the truckers liked it because they thought it was written about black ice, which is you know ice that freezes that you don't see in a highway. Yeah. But it's actually lifted from uh, a computer virus mentioned in um, an early William Gibson uh, cyber uh, novel, a uh, cyberpunk novel called uh, Neuromancer, and it okay. goes like this. And it's got this horrible riff in it that is stolen from Van Halen, where every time I have to play it, I have to go. Oh yeah! So every little, time you have to do that, I never with your nose. thought about that. A little Jamie's crying. Jamie's crying, absolutely. Nah, it's, because I, I never, I never. Of course, as I've grown older, I've come mm-hmm. to appreciate Van Halen <laughs> and really enjoy their music <laughs> and what they've added to the lexicon. You look like you're choking over there. Oh no 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 no! No, are you being facetious? Why no no? I wouldn't do that. Um, but uh, when I lived in Boston, like every Saturday afternoon, the BU guys would start getting drunk and, and start cranking Jamie's crying by yeah. like 9.30 a.m. And so it had to subliminally silk in for... Here it comes. Now, who played guitar in the original? Oh, there it is. Ladies and gentlemen, you know the, what? Uh, I was just going to listen. Uh, uh, vi- uh, victim or uh, what do you call it? Uh, survivor of numerous B times three and Stu Ham tours. Yeah, I'll never forget when you're like you. You called me, and I was always. This is a good lesson too, because I've gotten two really great gigs in my life, or at least great relative to what I had done previous, because someone else turned them down. And in both those cases, my first two real touring gigs. One was JGB, right? The and same guy yeah, down. yeah, and he well, he was in JGB for a while, Lauren right. Lieber, and then he left. So then I, I took over for him, and then I know you wanted Lauren. God, what a monster player he would have been! Yeah, incredible yeah, yeah. in B times three, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But he he wasn't going to go out on the road for a while. The JGB one was my first real touring, and it and it had we had tour buses and stuff, and wow. So I knew, like, Dude. I think I skipped a step. Hippie I think, chicks? Hippie chicks? Yeah. After a while, it's not long before you start wearing Birkenstocks yourself in oh, that band. Oh, I'm trying to hear that. <laughs> it's crazy. It was a gospel thing, too, man. It was, it, was, it was wonderful. But I knew that I had skipped a step and that I needed to pay some dues on the road. And that's where B times three came <laughs> in. 
because we were driving that van. Well, we had we had a driver, which was great. Bob, Come on. Bob was driving for us, and like he went up with Bob Snyder and the rubber band. What a great voice! Great. I saw Bob in uh, in Pittsburgh recently. We yeah. played there. It's just great to reconnect. But yeah, he's um, cranking away. Yeah, but that was tough, man. It was, I mean, I, I'll give you a lot of credit because it was really hard. The um, putting B types three together was uh, to find three bass players. You know, if you had say me and um, uh, Les Claypool and uh, Victor, it would sound like the proverbial, you know, thousand monkeys on a typewriter, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but you know, my style and sound, and Jeff Berlin's style and sound, and Billy Sheehan's style and sound are completely different, right? Yeah. Where no no sound man could even make the three of us sound anywhere alike. Right. Right. So that's why it worked. They were so different. Oh, yeah. Uh, but the hard part was trying to find musicians who could... My stuff's easy. It's a little hot time, a little funky, a little rock, right? But then be able to play, you know, Shy Boy and Double Time Boogie with, with Billy and have a handle on that stuff and then be able to play Groovin' High at, at, you know, 210 with Jeff Berlin. It was incredibly hard to find musicians, especially ones yeah. that would work for the you know cheap ass money that I, that, <laughs> that I was paying, or and I wouldn't say I was paying that. Sadly, well, the, the 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 sort of audience that that music attracts economically can afford. Oh yeah, budget is budget, right? Yeah. Budget is budget. So uh, you know, I asked a few people, but uh, and auditioned a few different people, but of course, our friend John Mater was a. You was mean a, was I wasn't your film. second choice? I, I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you were my second choice. I think I can't. I don't think I asked anybody else. I know I asked a couple yeah. other drummers that we know, but the, obviously there were guys that can play those three different styles are sort of priced out. And, and the reality of when you're playing in front of maybe 150, yeah. 200 people is not going to afford uh, you know, a guy who expects cartage and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, I, that was an amazing experience for me, and it was, was a lot great. of work to do three one-hour sets. And, and you know, I did my best to, to play speed metal with Billy Sheehan and, did a great and Bebop. Job. Thank you. But, you know, I just wanted to give props to John Mater. Like, he really brought it. Like, he really played all three styles so deeply on the drum kit, man. And well, we went you, to I mean, Bangkok you, 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 and you know, you know Hong what a, Kong. What, a, what a student and how seriously, you know John's yeah. going to be prepared, right? Oh, yeah. So. I'll never forget we were on the plane to the first gig, and there was no real rehearsals with the other guys. You, you and I and John rehearsed in San Francisco a couple right. times, but with Jeff and Billy, I had never met them. We're flying out there and just thinking, like, how's this going to go? Like, tomorrow's the gig, and we had a two-hour sound check or something, and John's on the plane next to me. We're like on a Southwest flight or something, and he's got all his charts out on his table, and he's got his headphones on, and he's playing the, all the parts through the whole five-hour flight out to Milwaukee. Or That's John. I, I've, like, I've I've seen him between the sound check and a gig, like go in the backstage and of the van, sit in the van, and like teach Skype lessons, you know, and, yeah. and doing you know one of the we did one of the two jams here in town, and you know it's some silly pop song dream police or whatever and he's right before going on working it out man yeah you know, he's great man i mean obviously it's why i've called him and written songs for him and oh he's so, you know, so used great him whenever possible yeah he's just killing it with these musicals too he's the hamilton killing, thing yeah, playing yeah, the it's, hamilton it's good 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 to have, good to be alive good to be working mater mater John mater darth mater dark mater now i listened back to some of those tapes you know because one of the sweetest things for me was that night that you tricked us into doing a live album. Like, we would just play at a gig in <laughs> Pennsylvania. I think it was a theater of living arts in Philadelphia. It was uh, it was the World Cafe in, World, in oh, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. And it was a nice room and stuff. And then later, it turns out that they tracked the whole thing. And I, I listened to a little bit of that. And I love your compositional side. And, like, it's one of these things where every once in a while you realize, wow, I, if I had to play that certain parts of this 
right now for a million dollars. There's no way I would remember it. Like I was listening to that section in Radio Free Abelmuth. Yeah. That breakdown, you know, like the, the middle section with all the notes. I think. That's easy. I like there's like fives in there. So yeah, I know, but it's so, it's so funny because back then, you know, it's so changed like, like that, you know, okay, it's quintuplets and then a sextuplet and then... The, the, the quarter note of the sextuplet actually uh, starts the new tempo when it speeds back up, right? Attitude song. With then yeah. I, I recently done a couple tours with a couple younger guys like Random Stein, great, great, yeah. great young prog player who I played with, and I hope to play with again. I'm probably using my next record. And this guy called Jack Foster, who's a sort of the Guthrie Govan clone. And those guys grew up on it. And like when we heard like attitude songs, like oh my god, and they yeah. they just they just play it like yeah whatever. Oh yeah, it's nuts. I've heard it. it's nothing, it's absolutely nothing for them. You know now that now I'm remembering Outbound. Going back to what we were talking about two minutes ago, that see that melody really sticks to me. And you 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 play an incredible part underneath it. But you're like playing like something underneath it. Uh, I'm, I'm just doing. A... fucking drop D. What song are you playing anyway? <laughs> that was a famous moment. That, that was, was a famous f- moment. I remember that moment. You came up to me on stage in the middle of the song because it was like the third night that I missed one note. You hey. had very good ears. Like It wasn't like a big... I listened to everything. I know, that, but it's, that was it's like one, in, of, those, one in, of those... We drove in like eight hours through the snow to like Jackson Hole, it was, Wyoming. It was the mangy moves. I, it's one of those times again where I was <laughs> just trying moves. to be funny and oh, yeah. uh, make you lighten up and you took it personally and hated me for the rest of the tour. And, you know, it's an it's a, uh, ongoing story in my life. But oh, the, no, intent, the intentions were just to no, have a laugh. I hate it. No, you totally... You took it I mean, the, the words... I, like, I, I that was an exaggeration. Because, because I was... I was. It's it's horrible when you think about it because I was playing with uh, a couple of musicians who I play with often who shall remain nameless. Um, and I called that song uh, Outbound and uh, I counted it off and they started playing Lone Star, which is in D. <laughs> and of course... <laughs> I had to stop the song about 16 bars in, but of course it's horrible. And then if you realize that, that if had they been listening, they would have realized that the bass line I was playing was to a different song yeah. that we've been playing, that they've played before. But the fact of the matter was they weren't listening. And so once you let yourself believe that, then there's no point of even being alive. <laughs> right. If you realize that people are just sort of on the autopilot playing, you don't want to think about like no, you that don't. or like how sausage is made or no, certain no, no, no. things. Just, don't. It'll just drive you screaming it, into the it, night. It's it's just too depressing. But 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 you should you should be able to know when when you're playing a different song. I mean, okay. It, I mean, it's in the same key. That's that's that's. But anyway. All right. Let's try let's try the outbound section again. Uh. That's it. That's the lead up line. One, two, three, four. 
I love that little diminished thing. People, you just got to see how it looks. The, the, <laughs> the diagonal lines going across the fretboard with your fingers. Just patterns. patterns yeah, when buddy. I'm playing that, I realize that it's not the same without the drums because me and John were playing it together. That's right. That's the idea. The Zappa influence with the uh, Never Walk in L.A. Uh, drummer. Not like Terry Bozio. Yeah, that's oh, it. That was Terry yeah. Bozio. Yeah, I was yeah. like, that's what I was thinking. All those things that he did. You know, some of the unison, unison lines that Zappa wrote for percussion and melody and stuff like that. So, yeah, that was a good idea. That was great. So, um, anyway, that was a cool thing that... Because maybe some people go into recording a live album, like, it doesn't even phase them a little bit. But for me, it's always like, oh, shit, the recorders are on. Sure, sure, sure. That was neat that I had no idea. So, it was just... It was like a, an actual natural gig. Oh, it was good. That was a good line. There was, there was some... Yeah, it was, it was, some, it was good. I think I you mean, told me something funny. You told me that you and when you were mixing it later that, that I was doing this a lot. Oh, And, like, you took yeah. out some of the... <laughs> I took out a few. I'll be, I'll be kind of say a few. Yeah, I mean, that's different when you're live. You're doing a lot of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, you're just like, yeah. Maybe, you know. maybe if I'd let you know that it, it was uh, that every, uh, you know, you're you're working it for the crowd. But um, the uh, the good <laughs> part is is you know, it's in your solo alone star, you can it builds to a climax where the band and the uh, crowd has like an orgasm, and you can hear some guy in the crowd go, yeah! really. Oh yeah, That's you haven't cool. heard that lately? No, I've not. Heard to play. It. Yeah, listen to listen to the guitar solo. There's one point where it just peaks, and the band and Mater and and a couple of people in the crowd go. Oh. What a fun night. But you know what? We got this is a perfect segue because the actual Lone Star has Eric Johnson on it. I mean, it It really has Eric Johnson. Like, he's got it, sounds like he's got his whole rig and his fuzz tone and the magical, you know. I could tell you stories about that recording, but that would probably take longer than we have. But I mean, all those stories about, uh, you know, Eric, you know, hearing the difference between Everardi and Duracell batteries, which is true because I can. Like he can I hear can the hear difference the, between different battery brands? Yeah, I can. I can yeah. tell. And I can tell when batteries are, 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 are hotting. But he takes it to the next level about, you know, chords have to be in this certain way and back in this way. And um, he, I mean, he's such a great player, also just sort of, you know, very very picky that that we sort of hit record when he wasn't looking right when same thing with you sometimes because he would overthink it 
So we, we had a couple great takes. There's one section where we comped one, you know, a, a, a version into another version. And then so he made us stop and spent about at least an hour seeing if he could physically play the transition between track one and track two before he would go on, you know. Um, right, because he wanted to be natural. I'll tell you though, that's something that I learned. I mean, since my first real recording uh, experience in the studios with Steve Vai recording Flexible on a friggin' four track. Right. I thought the recording was an exercise in not making a mistake and in perfection execution. Of course, when it's not, when you want to get a recording of a musical performance. And, you know, you listen to old Motown records and the mistakes are the good part where it rushes up or rushes or speeds, speeds up or slows down or unexpected yeah. things happen. People play wrong chords. That's, that's the good stuff, really. Right. It's not if you go into a studio just trying not to make a mistake, it's just going to sound awful. Right. Just, Precise. Just to right. back up a second, you guys recorded that on a four track, the yeah. like cassette tape player? No, 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 like reel to reel. Maybe, maybe it was maybe it was eight tracks, but yeah, yeah. only that. And Steve can hear everything. So you're punching in for sixteenth notes. So it was very intimidating intimidating. It took me forever to learn that you you have to capture a performance. And I think that it really honed into me that you know, I had, I did three records uh, with a band called GHS with Frank and Bali and Steve Smith. And uh, we was late one night at Steve Smith's yeah. house in Novato, and uh, we were tired. And uh, uh, Steve said, "Hey, man, we're all going to do solo pieces on this record. You know, do you want? Do you have anything in mind?" I said, "Yeah, I think I got something I've been working on." And he goes, "Well, let me hear it." So I said, "Okay." Uh so I played it once through, and he goes, "Great, we're done." And I said, what do you mean we're done? And he says, well, we were, we were taping that. And I said, no, no, let me hear it back. I said, wait a minute, yeah, dude. Oh, you know, the G string's out of tune, right? I got to put fresh strings <laughs> on it. I kind of, there's a little bit of fret buzz yeah. on this. I missed a note. So I, I changed the strings and, and I got it all in tune. Yeah. I sat down to record and I went. And it was awful. It was stiff. Stiff, and and the more I tried to play it perfectly without a mistake, without trying to just play music, it was it was got worse and worse and worse. So that's why now, uh, you know, I just don't give a shit. I call those take zeros when, when uh, when you've been recorded but you didn't know you were because yeah. you're getting ready for take one, yeah. and that's take zero. Like Lukather talked to me once about how he everybody wanted rock solos in the '80s, so he's gone. He goes in to do like a Lionel Richie section and. And they just play him the track, and he's just learning it for the first time. He's plugged in, he's not even tuned up. He's just playing along with the track. He's never heard the song ever before. Right. 
and that's it. You're done. See you later. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's no. like, wait, let me get take one. No take one. No. no. Was well, that- that, that's, that's great for pop. I, I go into, uh, I mean, I'm so used to, um, you know, God, I guess it's back to, you know, learning from playing with Steve, but, you know, inserting the anal probe pretty deeply when listening back to recordings. <laughs> and we were doing, uh, uh, you know the song, we were, we were doing the song. That's uh, quite a visual there. <laughs> uh, the Castro Hustle, you know. I love that. So we did it, and because I was trying to play something else and it was terrible. Wait, and the, play that and line the, again. It's because like uh, it's in four. I love that. So wait, you were saying? So we, we were trying to do something else and it sucked. So the the, the engineer, uh, Chris, at the time said, you know, try something else. So I said, oh, and, uh, okay. So we did it, just like the main rhythm track of the song, and um, and we're done. And going, great! And I remember it was it was pink. That was early days of Pro Tools, and uh, he said it's great. And I said, yeah, but there's got to be mistakes in there somewhere. So I literally must have spent two days just with, like listening to it at you know 180 to be at 180 dBs with a click track, just trying to find a fucking yeah. mistake where I could you know Pro Tool it and move it so it would be good. And I remember those guys. Yeah. There's a tattoo parlor there, right on the corner of yeah. uh, a market and whatever that was. Octavia, that was like, you know, that was like the last era where you could have like a bohemian, well, you know, like a recording studio on market. Like, <laughs> think about how times have changed. The rent on that place now would be probably oh, twenty thousand dollars a month or something. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, you know, but but so, so I mean, like the, the guy that I work with now, James Boblack. Uh, up there, you've been to James's studio up there, right oh, yeah, by Berkeley, Berkeley High School. From- uh, it's so great for me for you know for the, the thing where I can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, but he's he's great at telling me you know when to to let it go and you know good performance and. Uh, but yeah. the, you know the last record I did the, the uh, Diary of Patrick Xavier I just you know it was a, one thing that was really eye opening is it, for me was hearing this great Pat Metheny record called One Quiet Evening or One Quiet yeah. Night you know I and there's so much fret noise and squeak and I swear there's one part where he's going it almost sounds like he's made it part of the song like tuning to, to retune in the middle of it yeah. I swear that's what he's doing right but there's so much fret buzz and there's so much uh you know not mistakes but just it's it's how it sounds for a guy to play guitar and i spent so much time you know i listened to glenn gould and i you know and i really warm up and i really get my you know attack the notes you know at the right angle it's so clear and wonderful but like if you move from you know uh there's just going to be this sound of your hand moving it. And I spent so much time trying to mute it or do it, and it just sounds unnatural. We, we, we had this, the worst one day of my life was, you know, I was doing the national anthem. And, and every time I would stop, you would, because, of the, the, because of the wiring under Market Street, which is why the Studio. Warfield sounds terrible. It's got this horrible hum because of all the old wiring under Market Street in San Francisco, as you all know. I didn't so, know. So whenever I stopped playing, there would be this, some little shit that only I heard, right? right? And every time I hear it, that's all I could hear. Ghost you know? machine. So, so we, would, we would go. 
And then between that and we would actually cut it. So there was no music at all. There was total silence, right? Right. And then we went into John Cudaberti's uh, mixing room in Fantasy when it was still open in Sausalito, which is perfectly, totally silent. And you're hearing, yeah, and every time you're playing, there's some ambient background noise. And I, I thought I was going to vomit and just die because da-da-da-da-da-da-da. da 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 There's nothing. It was horrible. You missed it. it, it wasn't that you, no, it was just like the absence of... I don't know, one zeros and then like the, the dark multiverse. Did you fly in some white room noise or something? <laughs> no, we, we did. Yeah, we just left it. We ducked it a little bit, you know, but but I, I literally thought I was going to throw up and had to leave the room. It was one of the worst experiences of my oh, life man. hearing it. So so on that, on that record, I just realized that, you know, a little bit of slobby, that's the, the, the way that I play bass is the way I play bass. And to try to make it perfectly, um, you know, mistake-free and perfectly in time, is just is not really music. Well, I, I always love how you come. You do come from a place of the classical side which obviously started as a child your pops and everything where you're really going for a nice tone a nice performance and, and you know the finger well, noise well, is well, part why, of it why, why should, that's so weird why should that be even a thing why you really go for a nice tone I, I mean that, that's, it, it's music right? right shouldn't it sound good no you're absolutely right but it's not like a blues or a punk real approach. Like what I'm saying is that you say you're sloppy, but I don't think of you that way. I actually right. think of you as really putting a lot of attention into the actual nuances. Well, I, I try, but then I know dudes like, you know, uh, David Elmore and a couple of guys that I know that play in the symphony, you know, they can yeah. just play, you know, I mean, again, there, there are things that I do and there are things that I can't do. Well, you have a wonderful groove with all that stuff. I mean, and to me, it's just staggering the the monster guitar players. I was just thinking of Katahdin, that's Gambali, right? Oh, no, that, that was Frank Gambali. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's monstrous. You got Vi. Who else have you played with, you know? Joe Satriani. Joe sat right on me. Joe Satriani. Well, that was kind of like a, probably a big step up for you, I would imagine, in terms of touring. Like, he was he was doing some pretty big shows and always has. And sometimes you come back and do tours with him and well, you so guys that, play that, all over that, the world. I guess the, the story was back to how I met Joe as well. You know, I was playing with Steve. And uh, he got signed by Cliff Culturary. You know, he originally put out Flexible, uh, spelled incorrectly, by himself. Uh, and then he met uh, Cliff Culturary at, Rel- at Relativity Records. He used to come see all, all our gigs and everything. And at that time, I was already doing uh, solo gigs with Scott Collard on keyboards at my, at my place, opening up for Vonda Shepard and all these different people, right? Yeah. And a uh, different couple of different clubs in L.A., and uh, they came to see me play, uh, Cliff and Barry Coburn, the president of, of Royal TV Records. And they asked me, how, you know, if I could do a record for hardly any money. And I said, you know, sure, as long as I sign away the publishing for my first three records. <laughs> you know? So they said, OK, great. We'll give you one free yeah. copy for your mom. Right. And um, so they gave me like three thousand bucks to do the first record, you know, and uh, I quickly ran out of of songs uh, money and then that song flow my tears that we had yeah. played and may play again i had written for um a muted trumpet all miles to play the melody that's the way i'd heard it in my head 
And so uh, the drummer, Mike Barsamanta, had been playing with um, Mark Isham, great trumpet player and film scorer. So I thought he'd be perfect. So I got in touch with Barsamanta. I said, you know, can we get uh, Mark to play in the track? You hear the track, he loved it. I said, I'd love to play in it, but I want to record it at my home studio, and I got I got to have 50 bucks to pay my guy. I think I paid him 200 bucks for the track. That was the budget, but he wanted 50 yeah. bucks for his. And I didn't have the 50 bucks. I mean, I, not that... I right. didn't have it in my recording budget. I just could not come up with this. And this is when my Fender bass was in and out of a pawn shop on Van Nuys and friggin' Victory, you know, yeah. the weekends just to pay rent and stuff. Uh, so I called up Cliff and I said, I don't know what to do. You know, I've got, you know, two songs that need solos and I ain't got no money. And he said, well, you know, we just signed this new guitar player. He's a friend of Steve Eyes. You know, he actually used to give Steve Eyes records. He's doing a new record in summer. And, and so why don't you play on his record? And we'll have him play on your record. So I uh, flew up to Hyde Street Studios from L.A., from Burbank. And um, the idea was for me to put a fretless bass track on Always With Me, Always With You. But, you know, Joe's so slow, it took him all day to get the, the few parts that he played on my record. That was a joke. <laughs> and, uh, and so oh. he, he, he ended up playing on, I mean, the first track on my first song has Joe Satriani and Alan Holdsworth on guitar on Radio Free Albemuth, right? And Tommy Mars, and you can't get much better than that. And it's Mike Barsamano, it's crazy. Uh, and so that's how I met Joe. And, and then I the think... he plays the melody on Flow My Tears? Or? He plays, he plays uh, the melody on Flow My Tears, and he plays uh, the solo on Sexually Active. plays um i think the power chords on radio free album will alan played the melody and the solo on it and uh, then he had like some show it's uh some nam show or some hoshino event and uh he asked me to play and i met him and i met uh you know mover and man we just did a couple really small shows we played the belly up you know in slama beach and we played the coach house and then, uh, bam, you know, uh, you got the gig with Jagger and, uh, you know, surfing hit. And he was in Time Magazine and Rolling Stone. And we went to play in big venues. And we were on the road for three and a half, four years after that. You know, we did Flying to Blue Dream. And I played on some of that record. And we did that whole yeah. tour. And it was great. Yeah. Cool. Amazing. A rocket ship you got on right there. Yeah. It changed everything. It was great. Well, that's wonderful, man. I, I, before we turn on the mics here, you're talking about actually that you have a tour maybe coming up, maybe a little U.S., a little Europe, and you're actually not sure who the guitar player might be. Is this a venue right here on this podcast that we should, <laughs> should we bring this up? Are you, are you looking for, to hire somebody? Well, no, it's a funny thing, and I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to be like uh, Alan Holdsworth on that favorite, on that famous guitar player uh, interview where, you know, the business is horrible and give up and it's impossible to make a living and everything, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, no, no, I think, I think the next him. record, I mean, the last record I did, I really, really, really loved. Uh, it was very personal. I, you know, I wrote, I did a nice crowdfunding campaign. It's great. I was able to, to pay the people, uh, but it's a solo bass record, very introspective. And I wrote a story, so it's a hard sell. You know, I still stand by it. It's one of my favorite. I mean, the playing is just fantastic. The writing is great. I said a lot of things that I want to do. 
kind of hard to find venues and people to show up and and, and buy a, a, an hour and a half solo bass concert. They don't know how yeah. witty I am and how funny I'm telling stories. And you know, I you, do this thing where I, you know, I talk and I, I I tell stories while I'm playing and have this whole thing that I do. Right. That, that's that's entertaining to anybody. Yeah. If they show up, it's just hard. You know, to 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 sell them on the idea that uh, yeah. it can be, as I say, <laughs> entertaining. I love the sound of a solo bass in a theater, by the way. Like right. that one's Oh, so I had some yeah. great gigs. A gig in Estonia was, was the best. So, um, But I think I'm going to do like more of a prog rock record. You know, and the idea would be, uh, you know, I have obviously the musicians I want to use. I'd love to use. I've been playing a lot with Gergo Borlai. You know, Gergo probably have it. And uh, I might use uh, uh, Randy McStein on guitar. You know, it's a great friend of mine. You know, obviously, I'm in such a great... Uh, fortunate position where I know so many great musicians that I can just write a song and like 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 the song Book of Lies that the title track for two records ago I had the idea for the song which was a unison line you know sort of like uh, sissy strut but with an odd time thing and I said well I could you know write a, a, a drum loop or I could call John Mater who's going to be able to come up with a better drum part than I ever could and then yeah. I said, well, I need, I need a rhythm guitar part. Well, I could do a bad demo, or I could just call Lauren Lieber and say, hey, Lauren, listen to this. Play whatever the hell you want. Bam. Right? So I'm able to write songs for people who I know can come in and add their own thing to now, it. Now, Lauren, of course, is the reclusive monk on the mountaintop. <laughs> do you actually have a song with him on it playing, a lead or something? I do on the song uh, Book of Lies. He wrote the rhythm guitar part, plays an incredible solo. And he plays this incredible rock, arena rock, like freaking Journey solo on a song I wrote called Practicality. played live solo on a GHS uh, video filming of a song I wrote called Back to Shabalala. Um, so if, if you look online, there's some, some uh, videos of us at GHS. Lauren, is, Lauren Lieber is just this, everything he plays is, is uh, starts, at, starts at 11 and gets better. You know, he's, he's never, never, just incredible. His time, his rhythm, his melodies, his harmonic sense, as you know. Yeah, yeah. He's just, he's un, un, un Unfreaking believable, you know. Yeah, yeah. And never, never, never doesn't come completely with bringing it at all and something you've never yeah. heard, you know. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Well, so then the next record, I think, is going to be more prog, more rock. So then when I tour, it can be like more of a yeah. more of a rock thing. And the, and the, but the reality is, is that you know it's not getting any easier to get people to come out to clubs to hear instrumental jazz rock fusion metal jazz latin you know semi-intelligent science fiction influenced science fiction influenced music right <laughs> yeah. so uh and a lot of my fans are obviously uh bass fans and, and and you know there are just so many more guitar players than there are bass players you know and i know these guitar players that i've worked with that that are you know semi-professional that still have webcast followings of billions yep. you know and get billions of hits 
uh, of playing the most simple stuff, you know, uh, because if they appeal to something, you know, all those guitar players, well, a- as a bass player going out as, you know, leaving, you know, a bass player, Stuart Ham leaving a show, it's, it's, and since I play such a, a wide variety of music, it's really hard to categorize and to get people to show up and to put money in everybody's pockets. You know, it's reality. So the reality is, is that I, I need a name guitar player, you know, to help bring in those guitar player fans for years. I've worked with Alex Skolnick. You know, he's just super, super duper busy. So when I have to uh, decide uh, who I'm going to use to tour, part of the uh, thing that, that I have to think about is a guitar player who's going to help sell some tickets with his name. Like Jude Gold, but of course you're too busy with your podcast and uh, you find your your uh, Jefferson cruise you know, ship. Jefferson cruise ship. I say that because I'm getting flying over to Florida tomorrow morning at four. But anyway, busy, busy, busy guy. <laughs> or you flatter me. Though. And you do have a bass player in the band now, huh? That's unbelievable. Well, Pete Sears is doing more and more shows. The original, wow. the original Jefferson Starship bass player and composer, and he play. You know, man, that's great. Yeah. Bring those original next. back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so that that's a thought. And then, of course, there's the thought about, um, man, the day that I just hire somebody that I don't respect or know or enjoy being a van with just because I think they could sell some tickets is the day I'll do something else. You know what I'm saying? I can't, I can't compromise that. So Powerful. there you go. Well, man, I really appreciate you talking today. I, there's another session I wanted to ask you about before we roll out of here. Let's do it. One of my favorite singers of all time. And if I could sing like him in the shower, <laughs> it would be Ronnie James Dio. Did you finally Dio. listen yeah, to finally it? Ronnie James Dio doing Dream On. Did and, you hear it? Yeah. Isn't it incredible? Every time that I look in the mirror, all these lines in my face get clearer. The past is talk about first of all the guitar player on there well it's so it's you know i did a bunch of these um uh tribute records i did this uh, rush tribute record with mike mangini and uh which is funny because i wasn't a rush fan and i refused to play original parts and I got a lot of flack for that and uh, and the, 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 the studio I was doing it you know my friend Ed McClory up in San Francisco I did it at his house which at the time his studio was down so you couldn't punch in it was a great studio if unless you wanted to like punch in so I had to <laughs> I had to learn all this stuff and play it it was good it was you know my Frank Sinatra moment but man listen to what what uh, and I, again I just never listened to Rush big I mean obviously I respect Getty and 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 love and embrace my cuckoo 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 rush fans everywhere and my opinion means nothing except I'm gonna that have to kick your ass I, later but anyway okay. that's fine so i never i never liked it and i uh, couldn't get past the voice and i always thought that you know only a loser would figure out the subdivisions of the song subdivision until i had to do it right well, that is a great tune <laughs> 
<laughs> the look you just gave me was, <laughs> that was priceless. You're so funny with your sarcasm. Like, where I just time out here, but I remember we were doing a sound check at the what was that place called? The Infinity Hall in Buffalo. What was it called? Oh yeah, yeah. I said I forget the that name of the, the venue, and we did our sound check, and you're like, "How's it sound out there?" It was like after we played for like half an hour and everything, and Bob's out there, and and he said. Sounds good. The guitar's a little bit quiet. It's a little overwhelmed by the bass. And you're like, okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah, and then perfect. you just turned off the bass amp and we left the stage. <laughs> well, usually it's like a sound check. How does it sound? Sounds, sounds like shit. Let's eat. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but so anyway, so you're doing these tribute albums. So I'm doing these tribute albums and, and, and some of them were okay. You know, I got the chance to play with some good people. A lot of them were fl- flown in. A lot of them are just sort of average you know, low budget, sort of, you know, just get them done. But um, got called to do an Aerosmith tribute record. And I remember I tracked it live with Vinny Kalita, who I, I know Vinny a little bit. We've uh, we've done maybe half a dozen recordings. And, um, you know, he's all business. But the thing about Vinny is when he, I mean, when he sets up his drums and then, you know, they go rack one and he hits it, I'm like, wow. I mean, not that I don't ever, you know, spend a lot of my life not listening to the tone of drums. But when he hits his drums, you're like, holy shit, they sound good. And, you know, it's got something to do with the skins and the sticks oh. and the hardware. And, and the way the, he tunes it. The t- but it's obviously him, right? Oh, yeah. Incredible. I mean, that, that guy is Incredible. one of those musicians who's the right. complete package. Right. So so, so for this, obviously he's uh, – and, and a lot of those rec- records, tribute records, people are trying to overplay to make stuff. It's the usual thing. If you think something's not happening, your first instinct is to overplay to make something happen. Vinny just knows how to play a song. So the drum track is like a song. It's not superfluous five over seven fills playing left-handed Zappa. You know he's playing. Right. The, he's fucking playing a tune, laying it down. Yeah. It's great. Uh, Stu Ham on bass, just playing wonderfully. Oh yeah, exactly. little undermixed. You know, because yeah. I play a little slide in the beginning. But depending on what speakers you hear, you can hear what I'm playing. Um, and I think maybe is it maybe Bruce Kulick who was producing it on keyboards. I can't remember who was playing keyboards. And then uh, Ronnie James Dio singing, who was great, and he is the the, um, the the power enough of himself to not have to be intimidated by Steven Tyler and can sing in his own way, right? And doesn't oh, yeah. feel the need to you know he goes dream on instead. Of, yeah. You know he, he makes yeah. it his own. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he has the right to do that. He doesn't have to. He can pay homage a little bit to Steven Tyler. But, you know, it's a fine line when you do a tribute. Do you try to copy it exactly or do you completely reinvent it? If you completely reinvent it, you're going to lose a lot of people. So you have to sort of, you know, respect the original but do your own thing. And then Ingve plays guitar. You know, and I wasn't there when Ingve was tracking. But um, he starts out playing fast in the beginning and it gets faster and faster. And it's incredible. But the, 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 the amazing thing that makes that song work is I know what happens. I'm sh- sure we all know what Ingbe's all about is that he just like played over the whole thing. But whoever mixed it like turns him down every fourth 
every four bars. So it sounds like he's actually listening and trading off with the other members of the band. Right. They're really just being muted for 50% of the time. For <laughs> music. Yeah. Cause he plays a lick yeah. and then they turn him down and then his dream on dream on. Then he comes back in, but, but it, but it makes it work, right? It sounds like it's calm response and it's really is just, it's well recorded and it's just of all those things. It's, it's, it's on its own merit. It's a wonderful recording. Man, that's great that you play with, with Dio. No, man, absolutely. Yeah, and Ingve, you know, that's just who he is. He's a force yeah. of nature. He's a he's a hurricane, man. Hurricane doesn't, you know, when a twister comes through town and is tearing buildings off their foundations, it doesn't pause for forty seconds. That I- that's the one like G three <laughs> tour. That at that point, I wasn't uh, in Joe's band, but I, I just would have loved to been on the Joe, Steve, and Ingve thing. Well, have we covered everything? I, mean, I think so. Yeah, yeah, man. So you know, definitely go and uh, uh, you know, I'm giving the Skype lessons. I got. I just did uh, another two True Fire uh, uh, instructional courses. I got a whole series of, of courses from beginner to slap yeah. to pop to blues to jazz to rock to True Bar. Great, great, great stuff. Buying that. Uh, the Diary of Patrick Xavier is super awesome. Wonderful, beautiful music. Really stand behind it. And uh, probably soon going to be starting an Indiegogo campaign to raise record money for the new record. And that includes, you know, Skype lessons. There's ways you can be involved about getting your name on the record. Uh, you know, passes to the uh, tour events. Uh, you know, being like co-producer where you get to hear it while it's being recorded and lets your input and pre all that kind of good stuff. Awesome. You know? And what's the best place for people with to to donate to your Indiegogo campaign to get Skype lessons and to send you their demo tapes and audition videos so they can audition for your band. (laughs) Well, you know, Indiegogo.com, you can still get copies and autograph copies of Diary of Packard Xavier there. And you can just email me directly at stuarthambase at gmail.com, S-T-U-A-R-T-H-A-M-M-B-A-S-S at gmail.com. And uh, hit me up, dude. That's the Chili Peppers version. That is. (laughs) That is. That's great, man. I mean, I can't tell you how, you know, when I was uh, uh, teaching at MI and uh, still back there doing, you know, some open counseling and stuff. And when I give private lessons at Paramount Music Academy, it's just, you know, it's not the hardest lick in the world, you know, and that. Yeah. Yeah. It just turns so many kids on to bass, you know, especially the younger generation who necessarily hasn't really been exposed or cares about people that are proficient yeah. in their instruments, right? Yeah. So what a, I mean, what a, what a great thing Flea did to just get so many kids excited about slapping bass and yeah, bass. Yeah, he's and one music. of the guys. Way before they had those big mainstream hits, I heard about them and I got a vinyl record. Yeah, yeah. When I was a teenager, and I learned some stuff too, like Black Eyed Blonde. Well, you you literally wrote the book on slap guitar. Oh, I, I've seen the book. Oh, that's right. I I've did write a the book. book. Yeah, you did. It's do. called Solo Slap Guitar on Hal Leonard Publications. That's right. Royalties but, from that and the MI uh, publishing pool come in regularly to you and afford the lifestyle to which you've become accustomed? I am a hundred air. Yes, <laughs> I am air. living life as a hundred air, awesome. man. <laughs>
Hope didn't, to be a thousandaire someday. Did you audition for that band or have a line for that at one oh, point? Chili or? Peppers? Yeah. You know? See? Yeah, I actually did. Like, they I remember a, everything. You do remember. You have a good memory, man, which is I surprising do. considering uh, some of our <laughs> crazy nights together. Well, yeah, that's well but yeah, in the past. You know, in the 90s, they had a cattle call. Matt, there was no email or interwebs back then. And you just call this number and you leave your name. So, yo, I'm a guitar player. And then like five days later, I get a message Yo, this is the Chili Peppers office. Show up in North Hollywood at, you know, 10 a.m. on such and such day. And Do they give you a list of songs to learn? Nothing. Or? That's it. And there's no information. Can't call back. So my buddy's like, you got to do it, man. So he gets right. me a plane ticket and stuff. And he just wants to go down to L.A. and have some fun because we're up in Oakland, Berkeley. We fly down there. Oh, Oakland, where's, where's that? <laughs> Berkeley. Well, I've never, where is that? Oh, you sound like a San Francisco elitist. Oh, oh never, that's right. never crossed the bridge. Oh, that's right. No, I've been to the uh, the Emory the the uh, uh, IKEA in Emeryville. All right. Well, that's because there's not one in San Francisco. And uh, let me see. I, yeah, I've, I've obviously been to the, the the Coliseum to see some Raiders games, and occasionally uh, Hagenberger X. You know, to, to fly out of uh, Oakland. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, is there other stuff there though? Absolutely, man. Shape a nice. You he, might he like I, that. I've been there. <laughs> Yoshi's, I'm sure you played Yoshi's Jazz Club. I, I played there. Um, I played there uh, Monday before Nam. Badass. All right, let's play some Lone Star. All right, Jude. Oh wait, should we play a blues before it? Yeah. Uh. Uh. Okay. Uh. slow tempo. Thank you. Now I have to edit out. 
Shall we go into it? ending beautiful man Dude, go. super inspiring man keep it you're alive till you 95 you're hired let's go see a movie